0: I can still recall vividly the moment in my life when I had to come to grips with the fact that my view of Jesus was too small, it was too small. I was down in Kansas City with some friends and one of them suggested, hey, there's a philosopher speaking to a group of teachers, doesn't that sound fun? Of course. So, when I walked into that room, I walked in fairly assured that my view of Jesus, my understanding of Jesus, was robust, was solid. I had grown up in the church, after all, I had gone to a Christian college. But I'll never forget how I walked out of that room that day, and I remember thinking that my view of Jesus was about this big. This gentleman spoke. With awe and with wonder at just the magnificence of Jesus, who he was, his power, his wisdom. The thing that really got me is he talked about how Jesus is just the smartest person to have ever lived. No one smarter. It kind of blew my mind. It kind of rearranged my framework. And I left that day thinking, I need to go deeper in my understanding of who Jesus is. My view of him needs to expand. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not that I needed to kind of come to saving faith. What I had believed about Jesus was accurate. It was just that I needed to step into a fuller, a more mature understanding of who he was. I needed him to expand on the horizon of my life. This morning, we are beginning this journey through the book of Colossians, a book that a number of New Testament scholars agree presents the most lofty glorified view of Jesus Christ and as we begin this series the question I want to ask you to consider this morning is do you think much of Jesus and of his gospel is he large in your mind do you have a huge magnificent magnified view of him or is it possible that over time maybe through neglect or possibly just presumed familiarity. Over time, your view of him and your view of the gospel has atrophied. It isn't what it once was. And if so, our prayer is that as we study this book, as we dig into God's word, all of our views of Jesus will be magnified. That it will grow as we dig into the book of Colossians together. If you have your Bibles, open with me to the first chapter of Colossians. We're going to be in the first eight verses this morning. Now, there are a lot of things to say about these first eight verses. But before we get to that, just wanted to give you a little bit of context for this book that will set us on the course that will be on these next few months. Colossians, of course, was written by Paul. We believe he wrote it from... Uh, either prison in Rome or prison in Ephesus. There's a good debate about which one it is. But either way, we know he was imprisoned. It was written in the early 50s or early 60s AD. Colossae was the city that he was writing to, the church there. It was once a large city, but over time it had started to diminish. Another thing that's interesting about Colossians is we do know that Paul never had visited Colossians before. The gospel came to the people of Colossae through one of Paul's fellow workers, Epaphras. And over time, a, a community of faith, a community of believers was growing. But along with it, there was a growing concern that Paul had that was present on the ground in Colossae. Most often, when we read Paul's letters, we're very kind of clear about what exactly the nature of the threat or of the problem was that was kind of brewing in that church community or in that city. But when we get to Colossians, it's a little more vague. We, we don't know precisely what it was. But what we do know is there was a problem of false teaching that was growing in and around this Christian community. This false teaching was kind of a mixture of pagan thought and of Jewish thought, a little bit of a, of a false teaching stew, a lot of different beliefs kind of thrown in. And the outcome of those beliefs, the outcome of that worldview that was kind of growing in Colossae was that Jesus Christ was being diminished and the gospel was being diminished. And that threat, that concern had to be addressed. and So that prompted Paul's writing to this Christian community. As we open this book, I'm excited. I think we are going to see two things happen. Number one, we are going to meet a profound view of Jesus Christ. We are going to see him lifted up and magnified. We're going to be awed by just the dazzling wonder of who he is and how he currently reigns over all creation. But it's not just that. I think we're also going to be inspired inspired to follow Him more closely, to be more intent of our pursuit of Him, to be, in a word, rooted in Christ. That's our hope, that's our prayer as we begin this book together. So with all that in mind, let's begin in Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So, here at the outset of this letter, we have what is the formal way that Paul begins most of his letters. It probably sounds familiar to you. And in fact, that's the way letters during this time generally began. They'd kind of follow this pattern it would start with a sender. And then it would name a recipient, and then it would move into a greeting. So at the outset here, we have Paul stating who the sender is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That word apostle essentially just means sent one. An apostle is someone that was sent out on mission like an envoy or an ambassador an emissary, someone going out on behalf of someone else. And Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the very will of God, out on a mission for Jesus. There's a second sense that that word apostle carries, and it has to do with authority, of course. The apostles were the ones commissioned by Jesus himself, and Paul is writing with the authority of An apostle commissioned by Jesus himself, by the will of God. This was no self-designation. It wasn't like Paul was saying, hey, I'm just going to call myself an apostle. No, this was Jesus's declaration of the role that he would have. Now, if we're not careful, we can breeze past the fact that there's a second title in the first verse of Colossians. Christ Jesus. Sometimes in modern culture, it feels as though we think of Jesus's last name as being Christ like if he were a football player you know there'd be the name Christ across his shoulders it's not his last name it's a title christ is simply the greek equivalent of the hebrew word messiah which means anointed of god this is the one that god promised he would send The one who would come and bear the burden, bear the sin of the people of God. The promised one that God would send, the anointed one. That is who Jesus is. He is the promised one of God. And Paul is a a messenger, is a sent one of Jesus the Messiah. The very promised one of God that was sent to restore what had been broken. Senders, Paul And of course, course, Timothy, our brother. We've read about Timothy when we studied the book of Acts together. Timothy was one of Paul's kind of main confidants, one of his chief co-workers. The recipients he calls the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are at Colossae. They are the holy ones of God, the set-apart people. That is what saints literally means, just the people of God, the ones that God has set apart for his own inheritance. And then he refers to them as brothers and sisters. There's a kinship in Christ. We are a family, not just a mixture of assorted individuals. No, we have deep ties because of who is in charge, who is the head of the family. Now again, you know, it's so easy to breeze by some of this stuff, but Paul makes another profound statement in saying that these are the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are at Colossae. What Paul's highlighting there is something that's real and true of all of us is that we are people that live in tension. Literally, the Greek reads, in Christ, in Colossae. We are people who live in the light of two kingdoms. We are part of the kingdom of God, but yet we are living in this world, and therein lies the tension for all of us to wake up each day and to pledge allegiance again to God and to his kingdom as we go about our daily lives. They are in Christ. They are in Colossae. We are a people in Christ, in Lincoln. We are working out what it means to live faithfully right where God has placed us. And finally, we get to the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So often what happened at the end of these letters when they got to the greeting, it would say, greeting to you. And what Paul has done is take that word greeting, and he's changed a couple letters, and in doing so, he's infused it with a God focus. Instead of a greeting to you, he says, grace to you. God's grace to you. And so often when we read Paul, it's important to stop because just in these eight verses, there's just so much content. Every word is loaded, kind of dripping with meaning. So this word grace, so often it seems that we think of it as synonymous with forgiveness, but Paul isn't saying forgiveness to you. No, what grace is, is grace is God's action, God acting to bring about what only he can bring about. Paul Paul's saying, grace to you. The Colossians needed God's action in their life. And surely if they are going to withstand the pressure of this false teaching, they are going to need God's uplifting, upholding grace with them. So that brings the opening to a close. And we move into the body of the letter in verse 3. We give thanks to God... The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul begins with an overjoyed sense of thanksgiving. We give thanks to God. How do we do it? We pray always. So often when you read Paul, it seems that he moves in and out of prayer and thanksgiving and declaration of truth. It's as if if he's considering the truths of God, and then he just kind of erupts in thanksgiving and erupts into prayer. And prayer is talking with God about what we are involved in, what we're doing together, what concerns us. And as we are caught up more and more in the things that concern Him, that is the object or the subject of our prayer. We bring our concerns before Him. And I'm sure that Paul and his Little group of missionaries were lifting up prayers often for these Colossians. But here at the outset, what Paul is, is he's overwhelmed with thanksgiving to God. He's lifting up thanksgiving and praise to God. So why is he so thankful? Well, verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, let's look at those two phrases separately. Paul is overjoyed. He's overwhelmed with gratitude because of their faith in Christ Jesus. These Colossians had the word of God come to them. Someone proclaimed the truth to them and they believed. They placed their faith in what was proclaimed. Faith is one of those words that it's good to talk about. Some of you may have heard the quote from Mark Twain. He intended to be humorous, but I, usually his humor usually had some little element of truth in it. That's what makes it so funny. He said, faith is believing what you just know ain't so. Faith is believing what you just know ain't so. That is the way the world thinks of faith. It's almost as if faith is opposed to knowledge. Faith is opposed to to intelligence. There's a whole realm of things that you know can't be true, so we call those faith because we're supposed to believe them, and so we just, that's faith, and then there's smart thinking over here. That is not what faith is. No, the biblical view of faith is that it is belief. It is trust. It is confidence. When you believe something, it is more than just Believing the facts about it as if you can pass the trivia test. No, belief leads to action. When you believe something, you're ready to act as if it's true. And specifically here, the Colossians came to believe that Jesus is the very Son of God. He is the Messiah of God, the anointed of God, the one that God sent into the world to represent him. That we might know what God is like to proclaim his kingdom and manifest it. To go to the cross, to bear the sins of the world, but then not to remain in the ground. Not to remain in the grave. To rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father and to reign. And the Colossians came to know this information and they placed their confidence in it. They placed their trust in it. Authentic faith, authentic belief results in action. And that's just what Paul states next. He's overjoyed because of the love which they have for all the saints. Love, biblically, again, is much more than mere sentimentality. It's not this superficial feeling, no, it's a deep commitment. It's it's an act of the will, it's a choice, a covenant. A commitment, when I love someone or something, I'm committed to what is good and what is best for that person, for that thing. You look around the world and what you see is real targeted love, targeted affection. We do good for people that are like us. We love those that think like us, that look like us, that talk like us, that believe the same things, that are affiliated with the same people that we like to be affiliated with. It's what you see in the world, but what Paul saw here in Colossae, what he heard about from Epaphras, is that there is a love that exists between these believers that transcends, that crosses boundaries, crosses distinctions, doesn't matter what race you are, what culture you're from, what socioeconomic class you're a part of, they possessed a love for all of the saints, Paul says. And it was a mark of the Spirit's work among them and it brought him joy and it made him well up with gratitude to God. So in summary, Paul was thankful because he saw their faith and he saw the love that existed among them. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you get to these points in Scripture and you say, oh, okay, so what I need to do when I leave today is I need to believe harder and I need to love more. And so I'm just going to grip my teeth, I'm going to do it, I'm going to flex my muscles and I will be loving everyone this week, whether they like it or not, right? We see something good, and this is praiseworthy. Paul is so thankful for these qualities that he sees in them, and we see that, and we think, okay, so therefore, go do it. And sometimes we try to go do it in, what, in the power that, that merely our strength or our will can provide. And before long, we get weary, and we get tired, and we realize that maybe we've been pursuing something that is good, but we've been doing it in the wrong way. See, the way to become more loving is not to try really hard to be more loving. There's a different pathway. There's a different way to grow in love. We have to acknowledge it's a good thing to be a person of love. That's clearly a great quality, but to chase after it as if it is the end that we have to produce in ourselves is to lead into a tiresome existence. So if only... If only Paul would tell us how to go about it. All right, let's continue. We got to keep reading. Verse 5. Let me read verse 4 again, but then we'll get to verse 5. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, here's the key. Because, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, The gospel. Verse 5 begins with this critical little word, this conjunction that's carrying so much weight. Paul says, because, on account of, on the basis of, the reason you have become so loving is because of the hope reserved for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. In other words, in their encounter, With and belief in the gospel They came to possess a future hope I say future because it is not yet realized But a future hope that was so compelling So enticing So encouraging That it was transforming their inner lives It was changing them into different people And it was changing the way they interacted together So two questions that we have to answer We need clarity on today Is what is the gospel? And what is that future hope that we have as believers? So, first, what is the gospel? Well, at a real basic level, the gospel literally means good news. This is news that is good. So often you look around the world, if you turn on the radio, you read the newspaper, most of what we read is bad news. That is what is noteworthy in the world, but the gospel is good news. Good news. And then Paul continues to call it the word of truth. This news, this news that is so good, is true. When something is true, it simply means that it's it's reliable. You can count on it. It is trustworthy. Something worthy of placing your faith in. It's true. So often when I'm talking to people and they ask why I'm a pastor, my first answer is always because I really believe this is true. I don't do this because it is good for my health or because it's a good career path or because it's just one among many jobs that I thought, oh, I'll just do this. No, I do this because I believe that in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, we have the most outstanding, remarkable news, and it needs to be heard. It needs to be heard. I do this because it's, it's true. I said earlier that there have been times in my life, and I told you about the time that I had to come to grips with the fact that my view of Jesus could grow. And the same thing is true of me for the gospel itself. My view of the gospel can grow. I can think more, think more magnified about it. I'm a child of the 90s. Went to church in the 90s, church up in Omaha, great church. But during that time, it seemed like there was a lot of emphasis, and it was a good thing. But there was an emphasis on getting the gospel out to as many people as possible. So there were a number of programs that kind of Kind of popped up all over the country that were making, it was an effort essentially to make the gospel simple. And sometimes what would happen is the gospel would be boiled down to to three or four bullet points. And you would go out and if you could get people to agree to these three or four bullet points, then, then we could have assurance that they would go to heaven when they die. Sometimes Brian describes this as they get their ticket to heaven. They get their ticket to heaven. Some people refer to it as, they got their fire insurance. We ran into this in Spain all the time. People would say that, that you know, I don't really believe any of this, but if it is true, I, I believe the right things or I was baptized and so I'm good. Now, we just need to say, a ticket to heaven is a good thing, Right? If we're going to go somewhere when we die, which we are, we want to make sure we're going to the right place. And if there are any insurance people here, fire insurance is a good thing. It's wise to buy insurance. The problem is that sometimes we start to say the gospel is merely about a ticket to heaven. The gospel is merely about fire insurance. Now, the gospel is much bigger than that. At Lincoln Berean, we say all the time that the gospel runs throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. We see the story of how God is pursuing His people in order to live in relationship with them, and through Jesus Christ, He made a way for that to be possible for people to enter in to unending, eternal, blessed life with Him. You see it on every page of Scripture. We start the Bible in Genesis and you see God creating Adam and Eve and living in intimate relationship with them. You turn to the last page and you see this statement that the dwelling of God will be among his people. God coming and making a way for us to live in intimate relationship with him, with his good creation. The gospel is that in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, that relationship with the creator of the world can be restored and what was lost can be regained. That is what God has done in Christ. Does that include going to heaven when we die? Absolutely it does. Does that include forgiveness of sins? Absolutely, that's essential. Sin is a problem. It had to be dealt with. God dealt with it. Does that include empowerment to live with him now, walking with him? Absolutely. Does that include the promise of a glorious future? 100%. When we think of salvation, we can think in three tenses. We say past. God in Christ Christ has forgiven us for our sin. It's a present tense. God in Christ is empowering us through his spirit to live and to walk in intimacy with him now. But that's not it. There is a future tense also. There is a future moment that in Christ we will live an unending future with God. Past, present, future, hope for the past, hope for our present, hope for the future. Specifically, what is that future hope? Well, the future hope that we have is that what God has begun in us, in making us alive to Him, in giving us His Spirit, He will complete, and it will result in a culmination, a moment in the future where even our lowly bodies will be made new, will be transformed into His likeness, and we will live with Him in a new heavens and a new earth that will be glorious when it's revealed. It will be glorious. Eden was good. What is coming is going to be so much better. Now that is news that is worthy of getting you out of bed. That's news that is worthy of being shared. We can't think small about Jesus. We can't think small about the gospel. We want to magnify these things. The gospel came to the Colossians. They believed it. It began to transform their lives, which is just what you would expect from news that is so good and so powerful. Paul continues by describing the way this gospel is having an effect Everywhere it goes in verse 6. He says, The gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel, this good news, it will not return void. It will have an effect It was having a clear effect in the life of these Colossians. It was changing the way they lived together. But not only that, it will have a clear effect around the world. And Paul said, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing everywhere. And that's just what news like this does. Restoration, life with God is possible through Jesus Christ. The school of Jesus Christ is available, is open. Anyone can join. You can come be a disciple. Come be a student of the most powerful, wisest, smartest person to have ever lived. Astounding news. Remarkable news. And the nature of that news is that it spreads. In some ways, we could say it spreads of its own volition because it is so powerful, it can't help but spread The gospel bears fruit. It has an effect. And the same effect it was having in the lives of these Colossians, Paul said, it was having this effect everywhere. You know, there's studies done often about the state of evangelism in America. And so often when Christians are asked, how do you feel about evangelism? The answer is usually pretty nervous. If I said, hey, we got 15 buses outside, we're going to go downtown, and we're all going to share the gospel today, I think some butterflies would start to fly. We get nervous about that. And I think one of the things that we can see in the first eight verses here of Colossians is that one of the things that we can do if we struggle to feel like I have confidence to share this good news, I don't know if they'd want to hear it. One of the things we can do is go back and visit it afresh to look again at the astounding thing that God did in Christ. What He has done for you. What He has done for me. The astounding nature of this news. It is good news. It is remarkable news. It is life-changing, world-changing news. And after all, If we are here this morning, we are here because someone shared it with us. And that's true of the Colossians as well. We mentioned Epaphras already, and as we close, Paul brings him up again in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul talks again about how Epaphras is the one that first brought the gospel to Colossae. And I just imagine that Paul had to be just overjoyed. How confirming must it have been for Paul to see the gospel spreading with him not even entering a city, spreading person to person, community to community. What a confirmation of the power of the gospel, the extraordinary nature of this good news. And then as he closes, he returns again to the love that they have in the Spirit. That is the love that is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is producing it in them. In just a few moments, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. And I'm reminded as I think about this, as Paul brings up their love, I'm reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples in John 13, where he says, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Elsewhere, Paul says in Galatians 5, that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit, the effect of the presence of the Spirit is love. Love. We want to be a people who are known for our love. And in so many ways, I think we are. It's such a joy to hear about the way people have been impacted by by this body, by our family, throughout the city, throughout the world. We just talked about the Hope Venture. It's astounding. Just yesterday, I was coming in here in the afternoon, and I ran into a gentleman and he began to tell me he's come here for four weeks and already he's been going through a difficult moment and already there has a community that has formed around him. They are loving him. They are just taking care of him in a moment of distress and it just brought me so much joy. It's extraordinary to see love like that. So the question is, how do we continue to pursue that? How do we keep growing in our love for one another and for our community? Well, Paul's answer in these first eight verses is clear, isn't it? Pursue Jesus. Embrace the gospel. Trust Jesus. Pursue him. Be rooted in him. Make him the sole focus. Magnify him. Think much of Jesus. Think much of the gospel. And as we are rooted in him, let him produce the fruit of that only He can produce in us. Rooted in Christ. That's where we begin. That's where we end. That is what we are all about. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done through your Son. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have come and that you have done what we could not do for ourselves. By your grace, we are saved through faith, and we acknowledge we are people who place our total confidence in you, Jesus. And Lord, we ask that in these days to come, as we study your word, magnify our view of you. Floor us, astound us by the remarkable nature of what you have done in Christ, on the magnificence of the gospel, that we might be changed because of it. Only you can bring it about, so we ask you for that. We ask these things in your name. Amen.